Welcome to Grief is My Side Hustle. I am ecstatic on this Wednesday morning to get to sit down with my friend, Jessica Faith Kanderwitz. Thank you so much for being my first ever second guest on the podcast. Yay, I'm so excited. It couldn't be more perfect for me to be headed into re-promoting and watching folks come back around with their second books and their third books. And you have, last time I had you on, we talked about a book that you had just published and some writing workshops that you were doing. Mm -hmm. And this time around, you have a book that has recently come out. And I want, I have lots of questions from sort of historically across all the conversations from people about the writing process. And I thought, who better to ask those Mm -hmm. questions to than Jessica? So I would love, if you don't mind, would you hold up your projects? Tell us about the name of the new book and just give us a little description about what you were working on and why. Sure. Yeah. I have to give a little bit of background. So this book, 365 Days of Peace, I self-published a couple of years ago. And then, so my, so that's 365 little poems that I wrote over the course of a year. I actually wrote them directly into Twitter one every night. And that's how I, that's how I really found you. you I'm not on Twitter anymore, but just the evening benediction of the the your wishes for us which is what it always felt like yeah little blessings yep so those are like you said those are evening benedictions and then for a long time I've been wanting to do something for the mornings as well I'm really interested in this idea of liturgy but like secular liturgy that's not specific to any particular religion or even really necessarily religious or spiritual but filling that same sort of communal need for things that we're reading together that are blessings that are short and doable. So my latest book that came out this fall is the morning version and it's called Good Morning Friends, Gentle Suggestions for the Start of Your Day. It's a little bit different. It's not this, the 365 Days of Peace is sort of poems Mm -hmm. in the, it's formatted as poems and these are short paragraphs. And there's also not 365 of them because that was a lot of work to do that. So there's more. That was ambitious. Yeah. So there's more like 120 of these. And and it's really me writing to myself, like sort of gentle refocusing and reframing things that little bits of wisdom that I've gathered over my life that have helped me a lot. Uh, Does it put you on the spot too much to ask you to pick one or two that you really love? No, not at all. And just to read us, give us a little taste of. Sure. Let me, let me find a couple. I should have bookmarked them. This is one of the first ones that I wrote. This is kind of a more playful one. (laughs) And they all start with the phrase, good morning, friends. Good morning, friends. I give you a superpower today, Shazam. Someone you meet will have a sorrow or a grief or a despair that you can assuage by a simple act of kindness. You have that in you every day, actually, but today your superpower is to notice it. Mm. That's a fun little one. Uh, Here's another one. Good morning, friends. This morning, let yourself feel what you feel. 
Don't try to change or erase your emotions, but don't let them make you mean. Grief, despair, even anger can be fuel for incredible kindness, love, and hope. I've found that letting go of pain others caused me is integrally tied to forgiving myself. Mm. I practice by breathing. In, I did the best I could at the time. Out, maybe they did too. If I breathe in gentleness for myself, I have more to breathe out to others. That's really, so, really, really beautiful. Thank you. That's a, an exercise that I actually made up myself a few years ago when I was dealing with a lot of sort of invasive thoughts about wrongs that other people had done me in a certain situation. I, I want to ask this question in relation to the concept of writing and being a writer. Mm-hmm. What, the structure around having something for the evening and something for the morning. Can you talk mm-hmm. about the intuition around that and what, what do you, about those, about needing words at those times of day? Mm, that's a good question. Well, I think a lot of the concepts came to me through the, through the daily prayers, the mm-hmm. tradition of praying the, the daily offices they're sometimes called. So in Christianity, I think there's five, but it varies according to the tradition and you, and it's, it's prayers, they're re, pre-written prayers, mm-hmm. although you can add your own, but in, so it's five prayers throughout the day. And it's the idea that you're, you're praying the same prayers at the same time of day as everyone else of your faith in the world. So it's sort of that, like, it, it brings rhythm to the day and it also brings that connectedness to other people. I so didn't I, know that Christianity had that. You're teaching me something. I mean, I, oh, I, yeah. grew up, I grew up Catholic, but sort of like resistant Catholic at different times. Oh, really? So, <laughs> so maybe somebody, and I'm, not, and I'm sort of nothing now. I was Episcopal for a while, uh-huh. but people will see when they go to your website that you have, you went to seminary and that you have, mm-hmm. you have. So you have some background in some of this, the rituals of prayer. And I got a little chill when you were just saying that that really is the concept of prayers at a certain time really is about that energetic connection of Mm -hmm. plugging into the larger universe. And in in your experience with that, like, what does that, is that a relief? What does that do to be praying or thinking about or connecting to other people who are doing that at the same time? Mm. Well, that's an interesting question. I have kind of a fraught history with, I I tried to live in a, well, I did live in an intentional Christian community for seven years and it was really good in some ways and really hard in some ways and ultimately sort of helped me learn about myself. That's not the, that particular religious view, the sort of evangelical perspective that I grew up in did it wasn't really a fit for me but one thing that I really loved that we did is we gathered together in the evenings for the evening prayer which is called compline and there's a the book of common prayer is the we would read from that and it's just a beautiful well to me as a writer the words themselves are really beautiful they have that sort of feeling of time in them, like this isn't just something that someone wrote last week. It's something that people have been praying for 2,000 years, or not quite, but since they were 
written a long time ago. So it's just, yeah, sort of a a rhythm. And then the, I don't know all the sort of psychological and also scientific reasons behind it, but there's something about being with other people mm. and the resonance of your voices as you're speaking or singing together and the co-regulation of your bodies as you're breathing together. Some of that is more just in person, but I think you can sort of, I don't know if there's like vibrations in the universe when you're praying together with someone in a different town, but. What I love about your answer is it's just reminding me sort of at the heart of what the journey is, whether we're our personal emotional journey, right? Whether we're actively grieving or whether it's depression that we've been, that we've had since teenage dumb, or mm-hmm. I think I spent a lot of my young adulthood hoping to find a tent to get mm-hmm. underneath for shelter. Really right. that someone else, whether it was a church, because certainly I sought, I sought my tent there. Um, mm-hmm but also in other people's writings or other people's mentorship or mm. and I, what I'm hearing you say or what where it's landing on my heart is just this idea that we can pull the goodness from those tents. Really right. always going to have to build our own tent. How do you do it? You do mm. Julia Cameron's morning pages. Do you have a notebook and you pull your car over to the side of the road? Do you wake up with words in your head? You're a poet and you offer the sort of hopeful writing in a variety of ways. So can you tell mm. us a little bit about like, how did these books come to be? We've talked a little bit about your Twitter benedictions, mm-hmm. and but, but how do you write? Like, do you get up early? Do these words find you? Do you work on the words? The answer to that has changed for me over time. I wrote a memoir that was published in 2020. So I wrote it in 2018 to 2019. <clears throat> but that actually started as that came from my blogging days. So I would write an essay on my blog. And then I sort of started tying together what the what some of those essays had in common and pitched it as a book. And so that was prose. It was in memoir form. And yeah. then as the when the pandemic started and just all this stuff was going on in all in all of our lives, we were all experiencing trauma and challenges in different ways. I started finding that um were like prose and essays was too much for me. Not not just like too much effort, but too many words. Like I really just needed to express myself simply, just like one idea. And actually when Twitter changed from 140 characters to 280 characters, I was fascinated by that length. Um, There's a there's a part in a wrinkle in time where one of the I don't remember if it's Mrs. Who or Mrs. Which or Mrs. What's It. But one of one of them is explaining the to Meg the purpose of structure. And she's using a sonnet as an example. And that there's like a sonnet has very strict structure, but within that structure, you're free to create whatever you want. And so I sort of brought that idea to tweeting. Mm. And I thought, what would it look like if I just wrote poems with that structure directly into Twitter? And so that sort of became my practice. And also that I was, I wasn't just writing in a notebook. I was actually putting my words out there immediately so people could see them immediately and respond to them immediately. 
Thank you for that answer. Cause it's totally fascinating. Mm-hmm. Do, you came to that with Twitter. Did, did you, were you conscious of the decisions as you were making them? I think a lot about when, when people ask me questions about writing, I can almost always pinpoint when a decision was made because I had a conversation either with my best friend or my mm-hmm. husband. Are you conscious of the experimentation as it's going on or are you reflectively, con- do you do it and then say, oh, I liked that. That's mm-hmm. a new thing I'm doing. Yeah, that's an interesting question. I think for me, it's a little bit of both. Hmm. I'm a I'm definitely more of an internal processor but then only to a certain point then I need to talk it through with someone so I have those conversations with my mom that you have with your husband she's good at like listening and looking impressed (laughs) at my thoughts wow yeah that sounds great but I think also a lot of it has been because I've been sort of public in my writing since was it like a while ago, 2016 or something, I had an essay go like really super viral. Yeah. And it was about, it was during the, one of the um, controversies about whether Christians should be required, Christian bakers should be required to bake cakes for gay weddings. And I had some thoughts on that. So that was sort of like, put me into the spotlight. And so since then, it's been a lot of sort of like responding to my readers and my readers responding to me. And then I think for me, it was sort of thinking like, okay, well, this is something that sort of didactic writing, like I have an opinion about something. Yeah. Let me share it with you was, was good for a while, but then I sort of started feeling like, and that's not exactly what I feel called to do. Like, I don't, I don't feel called to convince people of things. I feel called to make art and then let the art do its work in the world. So that was sort of my process between my, my thought process and switching to more poetry. Yeah. Because people don't, people can't argue with poetry. It's a poem. You can't say, well, I disagree because it's like disagreeing with the painting. Your essay that's viral is on your website. So if people are interested about in what that was and to go read it, it's there and they can click on it. And it is a pretty extraordinary thought piece. I want to know what it's like to interact with readers. What is it like to have people get to say whatever it is that they want to say about what you have thought and said? Is that a pleasant Mm -hmm. experience? Does it flip I think about our friend Glennon Doyle and when she was originally writing there were days where she would go into a dark hole because it Mm -hmm. felt exposing can you just talk I think everybody would say Mm -hmm. oh my gosh I want a viral essay and I think again our friend Laura Parrott Perry would tell you maybe you do not because it's not always what people think it is yeah yeah well that for that particular essay I think I had close to 2,000 comments And about half of them were positive and half were negative. Right. So I actually like, I, I got two of my friends to help me because I was like, I, I, I had said it to moderate comments so they wouldn't get posted unless I approved. So the three of us, like for three days, were just waiting through and I wasn't just posting the positive ones, but I was trying to post the ones that were constructive and helpful rather than just like you're going to hell <laughs> because right. of what and, you believe. 
And was it, was it, is it okay? Because I know I, you, you get feedback from readers and I'm assuming like any writer that some of those mm-hmm. are going to, I don't know, you have fans and then you have the one person who wants you to know that you got everything wrong. Mm-hmm. Are you able, does that, have you learned, is it, has it been a process? Oh. Yeah. Well, I think for me, there's, there's just like the trolls who are for me kind of easy to ignore. Like they're just trying to be assholes. I can just delete and not really think about it. Mm. For me, the hard part is the people, because I'm writing my first two of my books are about depression. And then in all of them, I just go really deep into my own heart and soul. And I think as a counselor yourself, I think that the people, actually a pastor taught me about transference, a pastor that I was working with. Yeah. So I think a lot of people sort of respond from that place Yeah. in a way that, well, for me, I feel kind of responsible for my readers because I'm going so deep, but also I am very cognizant that I'm not a, I'm not a minister. I'm not a therapist. I'm a writer. So I want to stay in those roles. So I think for me, the hard ones are where like what I've written has brought up something painful for the person and they're upset at me about that or they're upset because to them, my voice has sounded kind of parental in a way that hurt them like that, I, which is the opposite of my goal. I'm, yeah. I'm not trying to sound like an angry parent or a judgmental parent. I'm trying to sound like a empathetic friend but sometimes it just touches people in a painful place. And so for me, that's hard because I don't want to just dismiss their pain, but also it's not really my role to walk them through that. So I kind of have to thread the needle and find something kind to say in response and also know when for my own sake, I need to set a boundary and like, I'm not helping them and I'm just getting upset about the conversation. Those are the hard ones. Well, it sounds really sophisticated, but what I'm hearing inside what you're saying, which is different, I think, because it's a one, it's more of a one-way conversation, right? The way people can sometimes get themselves in trouble in friendship is like, you say to me, well, Megan, that hurt my feelings. And I'm like, well, that's not what I meant. So your feelings are Mm. really take a look at why you got hurt instead of I'm really sorry that hurt your feelings, right? right? Like, like I, I use this example a lot of like, listen, if I punch you in the face while I'm falling over a cliff, grabbing at a tree branch, you're still entitled to say, oh, that hurt me. And I, I really love what you were describing, which is they're essentially like their reactions are not really about me. They're about them. Mm -hmm. Right. And, And so when they reach out and tell me that, I can say, I, I heard what you said and mm-hmm. I'm sorry if it hurt. Yeah. And that I think is, I think even that is really beautiful and boundary. And it sounds like that works for you. That, that it, I'm learning. I'm learning. It's been a process. The reason I ask it is because your writing is so personal and beautiful and you do share so much about mm-hmm. uh, both your own experience, but also sort of like in your writing, how writing has been so transformative mm. and helpful for right you. so it's like we want to be careful that nobody turns off your spigot of goodness that's goodness for you that you're generous mm. enough to share 
your goodness with other people, mm-hmm. you know, but obviously it's always, you can't know how it's going to land with someone. Right. Actually, my friend recently, my friend, Adi, I'm going to pronounce her name wrong, on Adi Kohlberg. Okay. I'm really bad with names because I, I, she shared something. She's a writer and a counselor. She responded on Twitter by saying, just take what you need and leave the rest. If it's not for you, leave it for other people who it is for. And she said it more succinctly than that. So I've been trying to work with that idea. Like some, not everything I write is going to be helpful for everyone, but that doesn't mean I have to try to adjust, like change course and try to make it for everyone. Well, it makes me think it sort of like is that full circle, which I don't think I do this as much anymore. I'm not seeking refuge in other people in the same Mm -hmm. way I did maybe 10 or 15 years ago. Mm -hmm. And so, although when my mom died, I did read a lot and I threw books across the room that I felt like I would, I was with them. I was with them. And then somehow that writer betrayed me by having a totally different experience. They didn't betray Mm -hmm. me. They're writing their experience. They weren't writing me refuge inside their text. I was just seeking it there. Mm -hmm. Uh, So it all, it also, I love what you've described in terms of what your friend says, because these seekers need to seek in all kinds of places and not Mm -hmm. just one person who's helping them to to feel seen and known in their words, right? Can you tell me a little bit about like, do you, is all of your writing process something as you're doing it that feels like I'm writing this for product? Like I know that I'm going to put this somewhere or do you have a, I don't know, like a journal that you write in incomplete sentences in, or you, there's a grocery list, but also a quick poem. Uh, I, for most of my life since I was a teenager I journaled Mm. and then somehow a few years ago I lost that habit Mm -hmm. and it I don't know yeah I'm not sure why but Mm. it it really was important to me and I keep thinking well I should get back to that but that idea of just like writing out random thoughts everything I'm thinking but I think also part of the reason I lost that journaling habit might be because I started writing books and I have I have very little energy (laughs) so it's it's possible that writing in my journal for half an hour in the morning would that would be my allotted energy for writing for that day so maybe that's why right well when you turn it into your job sometimes that shifts how it feels right exactly who it's for and so, so I may have asked this already, but do you have, do you get up and, and write in the morning? Do you write in the evening? Do you write all day long? How do you have a process that you follow? Yeah. Well, my best writing time is in the morning, right after my first cup of coffee. <laughs> yes. I hear that right away. Yeah. But I'm not very disciplined about it. I think that that kind of make sure you write every day kind of discipline doesn't really work for me. I would rather wait for inspiration. And I feel like inspiration comes not frequently, but frequently enough for me that I don't feel like I need to push for more. So if I'm writing some mornings, that's great. If some mornings I need to just play a game on my iPad to get ready for the day, that's fine too. 
That's a little disassociation is really good. Do you ever binge write? Do you do writer's workshops where you go away for several days with other writers? Do you, you have an intensity level that can shift or is it always kind of writing in the morning and we see what comes from there? Yeah, I, I do have intense writing bouts, but they're much shorter than like a writer's mm-hmm. retreat. It's just okay. like, sometimes I look up and I've been writing for two hours or three hours and I really have to pee and I'm hungry. But yeah, like I said, my, I don't have a lot of energy. So I like writer's retreats, but I find the pace of writing at them to be a lot. Yeah. Even just two sessions a day. I'm like, what? We're writing. (laughs) I already poured my heart out onto the paper this morning. Yeah. I think people have a fantasy. Like we have lots of fantasies about how things are going to, I'm going to for over Christmas break, I'm going to finish my novel or whatever it is. Uh, Part of it is, well, that's not how real world, the real world works. And part of Mm -hmm. it, I think also is you're, you're needing your brain in your body to be ready for that. And I have a, I have a colleague in a writing group who talks about like, even all the minutes that he's not writing, he's writing that, that that that's sort of like an athlete taking a day, taking a day off from Mm -hmm. exercising. And I like that because it gives a lot of permission around the process. Yeah. I'd say at least 50%, if not more of writing for me is just thinking. Yeah. And especially if I can go for like a, if I'm on a long car ride or on a walk or whatever, that kind of just free floating time for my brain is turning over ideas. And so if I don't, if I sit down at the paper without having that, had that time, I'm less likely to know what I want to write about. That's an interesting idea to me anyway, because I think when podcasts first came out, I didn't understand them at all because oh, I kept really? saying to people like, but when do you listen to them? And they're like, uh-huh. oh, when I'm in the car and when I'm, and I'm like, no, no, no. I mean, I need you to literally tell me when you're listening to them. And it, and it took me a minute and I discovered that people were listening to podcasts when I was listening to music and oh. music has a really big place in my life. Mm-hmm. And I can do the kind of free form background music and still be thinking, mm-hmm. still be in my own thoughts, still be in my own head that I can have albums on that I've heard hundreds of times and it won't mm-hmm. interrupt that. Whereas right. no way in the world. And I'm, I'm sure anybody who knows how the brain works would be like, yeah, no dumbing. And you're not saying anything smart here, but there's <laughs> no way in the world if I'm trying to follow a podcast that I can that I can do that. So it's interesting, long car rides and walks and things. Mm -hmm. Are you doing that with just you and your mind and your body? Or do you, is it also your, I don't know, listening to a podcast about poetry and it's making you think about poetry or you have music Mm -hmm. on in the background? It varies. I don't listen to music while I'm walking, but I do listen to it in the car. Yeah. And I think, yeah, I'm really bad at listening to podcasts and books on tape because I'm just so spacey me too I'm just like oh I haven't been paying attention for the last five minutes yeah. so I'm always like using the little back 30 seconds button I absolutely cannot listen to books on tape because I space out and then I can it's not I space out also when I'm reading 
but I can mm. find the word on a page. I can yeah. be like, oh, okay, whatever. They're they're in the supermarket. I remember that part. Right. But the book, I have no other, no idea how yeah. long we've been spaced out for. Right. Exactly. And so I can't find it. I can't figure it out. Yeah. I wanted to ask you a little bit about because I know I know your dad died. Is it two years ago now? Just over a year ago. A year. Okay. Last, last December. Yeah. And I think that happened in between the times that we spoke. And mm-hmm. I, I wanted to ask about that. First of all, to say, I've said it to you before that I'm so sorry about that. Thank you. We talk a lot about death on this podcast and often I'm asking folks sort of like, what were the ways in which you were able to grieve? Like what were the practices that, and I'm curious, Mm -hmm. I'm curious about the answer to that question. I'm also curious about the role that writing played at that time for you. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, it's interesting because my dad and I were close in our own way, but I've always found it a little bit challenging to really talk to him about like real not real stuff. We met on like an intellectual level and a fun level, but then talking about emotional stuff, I guess. Yeah. It was difficult with him. And so I've always actually used writing as a way to process my relationship with my dad. I have some poems that I wrote about him during a really difficult time in our relationship in my back in my twenties. And so that has felt sort of like a natural extension of processing my grief because it's like a way of communicating with him. Not that he, I mean, I did show him the poems when he was alive, but it was more internally processing. And I really love Charlotte jones Voikless is Madeline Langle's granddaughter. And I've gotten to know her a little bit over the last couple of years. And she says that she, her relationship with her grandmother has continued and grown. Yeah. Even after her grandmother has died, I was always curious about that. And then I, I have found over the last few months that that's been true with me and my dad too. And like through writing and through just talking to him, I feel like, I don't know, like he's a better listener now <laughs> than he used to be, not just because oh, he can't talk back, but because I feel like he understands me better now somehow. I don't know if that, I don't know I- what, like. I love that. My, the rabbi, Steve leader, he said to me on, we did a podcast together with, he has beautiful books, the beauty of what remains. And for you, when I'm gone, Mm -hmm. which are really about the legacy of what you leave behind after Mm -hmm. you die. And I was saying to him, I really struggle with this when people are talking to their beloved or their loved one Mm -hmm. or whoever they're like, Oh, I, I checked in with my mom. And my mom was really great with that. When my dad died, she'd say, I talk to your Mm -hmm. dad every day, but I, even now still, I don't do that. I don't Hey, mom to me. She feels dead. And what Steve said to me, which may make me cry now, what he said was the extraordinary thing about someone no longer being in their body is that they are able to show up spiritually perfectly. Mm, They are no longer encumbered by all of their human frailties. So they get to show up as perfectly as you would have wanted and they would have wanted. Oh my gosh. Wow. Isn't that just 
the most amazing, hopeful thing anyone has ever invited you to believe. It just takes my breath away because in my twenties, I spent a lot of time hanging up on my mom. I was in, Mm. in deep therapy and she, I think she would tell you it was a really hard time for her because I was trying to change things in our relationship, but I couldn't communicate very well mm. what I was trying to do because I didn't understand it. Yeah. And so I just had this hard boundary with her that if she triggered me, I'd hang up. And she would then like, write me a note. Like, I'm not really sure what I did, but I wish I hadn't done it. Oh. And so it may, which I totally believed. I never thought she was like, oh, I'm going to really screw up Megan's day today by saying something that's going to hurt her feelings. Mm-hmm. And so I just love this idea. And that doesn't end just because it, I worked through a lot of my own stuff. And so I think I was at ease with her in a way that was mm-hmm. easier for us, but you still show up imperfectly. And I just love right. the idea that like, even though I may not call on it, as often as I would like that I mm-hmm. have access to the version of my mom and my dad. Right. Just perfect, holy energy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And because that, that relationship is two way. So there's a part of them inside of you. That's also healed now and, and pure. That's right. Yeah. I love right? that. Yeah. Yeah. I like that. And then like, my dad, he had a, a long illness before his death that was yeah. put him in a wheelchair eventually for the last few years of his life. So it's also sort of like thinking of the parallels between the physical and the emotional or spiritual or whatever, that right. like he's free from that wheelchair now. I shouldn't use that. People in the disability community don't like to talk about being like stuck in a wheelchair because it's a, a tool of of freedom and accessibility in itself but let's just say that I'm I'm expressing it better than that but yeah like he's he's not disabled anymore physically and he's not disabled in the ways that he was emotionally and spiritually anymore either which is ways that we in in we all are we all have our own neuroses or brokenness or however you want to say it that we're we're yeah trying to heal in our lifetime, but never is fully healed. And I think, I think there is an energy, right. Which is maybe anticipatory grief, but there's something about when someone has lived in a healthy body and they're aging and there's an illness and their body Mm -hmm. is getting less well, Mm -hmm. where you're kind of always confronting maybe a medium to low level understanding and pain for them and with them about Mm -hmm. being towards the end of their life. Right. And so Mm -hmm. Uh, that 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 energy everybody is released from that energy mm, right and we can go back to the wholeness feeling of of everything is possible mm-hmm. yeah that's right that was something that also I felt strongly when he died was yeah. that like his life was over and that part was sad and hard but also his illness was over yeah. and that part was a relief You've done some writing workshops in the past. Last time we talked, you were doing one. I know you don't have one scheduled right now, but can you tell me a little bit about like what the process of being a writing teacher is or a guide or a facilitator? Yeah. Well, the workshop that I developed is specifically for people who struggle with depression, like I do, or other mental illness. So I think for us writers, 
depressed writers. <laughs> I think the normal sort of insecurities and impediments or whatever that all writers experience is sort of magnified. So that feeling of like the the terror of looking at a blank page and the fear of not being good enough or the fear of not being disciplined enough or whatever it is. So I, I see my role as a facilitator to just sort of take shame out of the equation however I can. Just be as encouraging as I can and create an environment um, where without judgment as much as I can. So that even more than like the craft of writing itself, that's my goal in my workshops and to make feel make people feel like they belong there. They belong in the writing community. They are writers because to me, if you have that passion within yourself to write, that means you're a writer and it doesn't matter whether it takes you your whole life to actually get words on a page. If it's in you, then that's what you're meant to do. And that's what you will do. I don't mean this in a hokey way, but it sounds really courageous, right? Like I have known many people in my life who the art is in them as you're describing and Mm. doesn't really feel like a choice not to express it, but that, but they could use a little bit more like narcissism or something, right? Because Mm. going to the dance class or taking the painting class or is a battle with their inner critic, with their sense Mm -hmm. of being enough, but just, and it, to me, as a therapist, who's watching people sort of try to change their relationship with themselves. Mm-hmm. It's pretty freaking heroic to have someone yeah. say there's a there's a story that that my mind likes to tell me that makes this extraordinarily hard, but I mm-hmm. really, really need to do it anyway. Really, really want right. to anyway, believe that there's goodness in doing it anyway. Yeah. Yeah. There's a quote from the novelist Thomas Mann that I really love. He said a writer is someone for whom writing is more difficult than it is for other people. <laughs> I, <laughs> which is so reassuring when I'm oh, having a difficult day with my writing. One of the things that I always say to folks who are wondering about writing, wondering about dating, wondering about getting divorced, wondering about any challenge or change is it really does behoove you to talk to other people who are doing it. So Mm -hmm. I really love writing workshops because there's a lot of me too in that too, right? Mm -hmm. That some of the people who I've most deeply admired their writing and would assume that they sit back on a throne of goodness. Uh I can can hear from them genuinely that they really struggle in ways that are like, oh, that's because it's a hard process, not because Mm-hmm. anybody sucks at it that it's that it actually this is what it can evoke and does evoke and maybe should evoke because right. it's such a personal process if you weren't doing writing mm-hmm. if writing if we said listen you got to spend a year and you're not going to write as part of your expression what would be another form or format that you mm-hmm. would use to sort of be in the world well I've always wanted to be an artist I've never really invested in learning those skills. Yeah. So that's, I love drawing and doodling and putting things. I love the fact that you can just, whether it's good or not, you can just draw something or paint something and then a painting exists. Right. Like you, you made that. It didn't exist before and now it does. Yeah. So I love and that. Then, 
music we, music too I guess although that's kind of cheating because that involves words as well but I think music would count and you are a musician right don't you play guitar and sing and yeah very very mediocrely <laughs> but guitar flute and I love to sing if you if you were going to give just like a little tagline about your your books and your work up until now and sort mm-hmm. of starting with the I hope like I hope what mm-hmm. what do we infuse the hope behind the writing that you've already put out into the world Yeah I love that question I hope that my books will make people feel less alone and I hope that they they will make people feel less crazy, I guess, for want of a better word, and more that everything that they're experiencing is a human experience, a human emotion, and that there that there's many other of us also experiencing that same weirdness or that same despair or that same confusion. That I guess that's another way of saying that you're not alone. I love that. I will encourage folks, and you may know this, but I'll have multiple copies of Jessica's new book. So if anyone wants one, I'm happy to have my team send it to you. And yeah, I love doing that. I love being able to give away a few copies and they will put it in the show notes, but people can come to your website and they can follow you on Twitter. You've got a lot of, you've got a big following on Twitter. And I feel like it's very easy to find you and find what you're working on, which I really love. There's no mystery, (laughs) um, which is really, really great. So (laughs) thank you so much for the new book and the new offering. And for those of us that really Mm -hmm. like the structure of having some words to go to in the morning and even places to write, the journal is such a great resource and we have benedictions in the evening and thoughtful ways to start the morning. I mean, it's just a really lovely, lovely setup. Oh, thank you, Megan. That was such a succinct description of my books. Yay. Have a All wonderful right. Wednesday. Thank you so much. You too. And we'll thank be you, Megan. Okay. okay. Thanks, Jessica. Bye. Bye.